Welcome back, Intimates. I'm excited to find you experts to talk about love, connection, non-monogamy, polyamory, relationship anarchy, group sex, kink, commitment, and lots of other intimacy and relationship topics. Let's live our best lives together by unlearning stigma and getting clear on what we really want. Don't know what to ask for? I have loads of ideas for you. Of course, none of this would be possible without the support of my amazing Patreon supporters or my current hosts, the Musqueam First Nation on whose unceded lands this podcast was made and this human was born. If you want to support more intimate interactions, you can say thank you by supporting us on Patreon for as little as $1 a month. Patreon supporters also get every episode of the podcast ad-free with short intros and outros. I know funds are not an option for some of you lovely humans, but don't fret, there are other ways you can help out. You can help make more intimate interactions by just telling someone you listen to this podcast. Or if you're feeling especially generous, you can share a link to an episode you like and discuss it with a friend or partner, or even leave us a review on iTunes or your favorite podcasting site. Help other humans interested in more intimacy and better relationships find us. If you have your own podcast, shout us out. Need a podcast guest? Email offers to podcast at victorsalmon.com. I love talking about relationships and intimacy, and I love cross-promotion and working with other podcasters. Okay, let's hear about today's episode. Do deterrents work? We call them deterrents because they deter people, right? If you make a a deterrent awful enough, doesn't that stop the crime? Maybe I haven't looked at statistics recently, but has capital crime ended where the death penalty exists? Assuming you don't count executions as murders, of course. Jana, a criminology researcher from the University of Ottawa, is here to help us unpack some of these questions. Since we, as taxpayers, spend six figures per prisoner per year in our current system, and if these very expensive punitive deterrents don't successfully deter crime, what does? What would be better? Because we can criticize the current system endlessly and find lots of juicy things to dig into that are cruel and only not unusual because we've normalized them. But let's talk about instead what might successfully deter crime, things we can think about, programs that exist for reducing criminals reoffending. When we talk about criminals committing crimes again, we often call that recidivism. What's the rate that someone that's been um, accused, convicted, and incarcerated going back out into the world and offending or committing a crime again. In a sense, you could call that rehabilitation. So we're going to be talking a bit about these words, recidivism, the chance that someone who committed a crime will commit one again, and rehabilitation, the number of people that have committed a crime that will not commit that crime again. So we're going to pose the question, does knowing you'll be caught for certain deter crime? And if so, with technology evolving, how easily can we catch people? And would we be able to offer a much less expensive, smaller consequence that is enough to deter, but doesn't eat through public funds in a wasteful, harmful way that our current punitive system does? Keep in mind, we're spending this much on prisons while simultaneously talking about situations in which people are constantly being exposed to violence by guards and other inmates, rape and assault are not uncommon in prisons, and they are in no way rehabilitating. While you could think of them as an extremely severe and cruel, genuinely cruel deterrent, I don't think anyone would ever claim that someone deserves to be raped, regardless of what they've done. So what if I told you that some of your tax dollars every year funded programs that resulted in non-violent offenders being raped? 
think about that as we're talking about motivations, crime, punishment, and spending. Keep in mind there's no chance, even if it's possible that we do manage to petition and get nonviolent offenders out to reduce the likelihood of COVID-19 outbreaks in institutions and to reduce the likelihood that those COVID-19 outbreaks will affect you in your city and your neighbors. Keep in mind that even if we manage to get nonviolent offenders that have a place to go out and keep them out of the homeless population so that we're not stealing from one problem and adding to another problem, as it were, um, there is no chance Correctional Services of Canada would ever consider letting out dangerous or violent offenders. You are quite safe. They are very conservative on their stance, and it's extremely likely they'll stay that way in pursuit of their public safety goals despite them predominantly using an ineffectual, expensive, and time-consuming system that we've given them to enforce. All just food for thought, all just my opinions. I say them passionately because I believe them passionately, not because I'm right. So feel free to start a discussion on the Facebook group, do your best to be respectful and not turn it into a flame war. And now, flame wars aside, let's hear from Giannis Gorstengard on Intimate Interactions. I will welcome everyone to another episode of Intimate Interactions. I'm here with Yana Skorstengard, a criminology researcher doing her master's at a master's candidate at um, University of Ottawa, who also has a an honors bachelor's degree in criminology. Welcome, Yana. Thank you for having me. So as an overview, do you want to talk really briefly about how your work is important to Canadian society during a pandemic? Yeah. Um, so my, my main... Um, field of research is arts programming in prison. Um, and while during a pandemic, that might not seem like the best thing to focus on, um, the way that I sort of justify it and talk about with t- talk about it with my supervisor is right now, while people are isolated, what are like what are we doing? We're watching TV, we're watching movies, we're consuming art, we're playing video games um, as a method to stave off boredom and for a lot of us to just survive. Um, you know, we're, we're writing people, I've seen people like take up painting again. Um, so even during times like this, art is incredibly important. Um, and bringing art into a prison context, I feel like you give prisoners the opportunity to discuss their experiences, um, and their own, uh, their own struggles um, and issues in a creative context that immediately I feel for, for a lot of people um, breaks down barriers as opposed to just doing an interview. You know, you watch a, you watch a play put on by a bunch of uh, a bunch of prisoners and it's a little bit different than sitting down and talking to them face to face. There's more vulnerability in Mm -hmm. art, I think. Um, it takes a lot of courage to stand on stage in front of people, especially people who may judge you. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, I think uh, I think it's incredibly important, um, just given everything that we're going through and the stress of it. Um, and it gives prisoners a way to uh, communicate their frustrations in a and issues in a healthy way. Yeah, it's interesting because it's kind of intersecting with my thoughts on dismantling toxic masculinity and sort of teaching communication and yeah all sorts of emotional intelligence skills yeah empathy even trying to understand what a character's feeling why they're feeling that way yeah yeah it sounds super rehabilitative to me Mm -hmm. 
Um, and I've had experience doing it. I was in a, a course in an indigenous men's prison where I was like, a. Uh, we were all taking the course together and we were putting on like skits and a lot of them were funny because the guys just wanted to like, uh, just goof around and that's fine. I'm totally into that. It's a, it's a stress relief for a lot of them. Um, mm -hmm. because they don't get the opportunity, like prison is not a place where you get the opportunity to like goof around and play and be creative. It's a very rigid environment. So for mm -hmm. them to like kind of go off the cuff and do like improv was like, and people, these people had never done improv before, but it was some of the funniest shit I've ever seen in my life. Um, <laughs> they, like, and some of the, like, some of them I was like, you got like really good character work, bro. And he's like, I don't know what that is, but thank you. <laughs> like, <laughs> it was just like, it was so delightful to watch a bunch of guys when they first started, when they first came into the room, they were super closed off didn't really even want to talk to us, much less each other. By the end of it, um, they're like, they're like, I want to be in this guy's group. I want to be in that guy's group. And they're like, you know, they're, they're friendly by the end of it. Right. And, um, you know, you watch people open up and I think art has a way of making us open up in ways that anything else, uh, might not have that ability to do. Yeah. Or certainly not the <clears throat> same collection of effects. Yeah. There is something very unique about self-expression and art and i think also the ability to you know metaphorically wear a mask yeah you get you get to write off your behavior as oh that was just acting yeah right? like yeah and if you need to save face and practice toxic masculinity and you know like no no that was just a character i'm obviously not like that yeah yeah it, it takes a lot of those emotional skills and sort of offers a barrier of like you don't have to be responsible for having feelings yeah but you do yeah. get to acknowledge and experience them in this space so i think yeah. that's fantastic yeah i also feel very strongly positively about theater probably because i work in theater yeah i'm it's it's a it's a huge it's been a huge part of my life for like 10 years now um even though i'm not a professional actor anymore um mm. you know doing it with people who have never done it before Mm -hmm. Um, you like, I watched their physicality, like their, their physical, um, like their like, posture, the way they walk, it changes their countenance, um, like how they hold their bodies. Yeah. It's, it's wild. It's absolutely wild. And it's so, it was really emotional to watch. Um, cause you know, in some of the academic literature, they talk about, uh, the way the prison space shapes your, your body and your body's response mm. to it. So a lot of times you'll see people, they're sitting like with their, their hands in their laps and their shoulders are up and they're super, um, it's almost, it's a defensive posture mm -hmm. because maybe they're waiting to get, to get yelled at or to get punched. Um, and your body just kind of responds and stays in that position just it, like, just so you can go there faster. Um, mm -hmm. But watching them, like, they started out like that. And then by the end, they're, like, like lounging, basically, in their chairs. <laughs> like, completely open. Um, and walking very differently. Like, they hold their heads up high. Um, whereas before, some of them, all they would do was look at the ground. So, wow. it's a, yeah, it was, and it's, it was really emotional. Um, and the fact that I only got to spend eight weeks with them and not more. Um, I, I wish I had been there longer. I wish it had been like a four month thing, but 
um, the program was only like an eight week program. We were there twice a week. So, right. Yeah. <clears throat> Almost like if that could have had more funding and been a proper program, you could actually work with a set of people from like a long term, yeah. for example, like lifers yeah. um, to try and shape the culture in a smaller prison. Like that could be a very rewarding type, yeah. type of job for some. All of them were pretty much lifers. One guy had done, was doing two years. Wow. Uh, but everyone else had been in prison since they were about 18. Jesus. How old yeah. were they? Um, one of the guys was in his seventies. Wow. Um, a lot of them were in their like forties or fifties. Um, they had been in and out of prison, but like, right. If you total up the whole amount of time, they spent more time inside than outside. Oof. Yeah. I yeah. think that's a good definition for a lifer. Yeah. And they like, you know, in the beginning they went from like, we'd ask them, you know, you'd ask them questions and it was like a very like, uh, one or two word answer to like, by the end of it, they're showing us pictures of their kids. Wow. Uh, <clears throat> you know, they're, <clears throat> did, they, did they have phones? Like, how are they able to show you pictures of their kids? Oh, they, uh, they have, um, like physical, like physical pictures, oh, physical pictures. Yeah. Their, their families have mailed them into them. So one of the guys was showing me like, um, pictures of his granddaughters, um, who he has, he's never met, um, face to face. He's only That's met so over the sad. phone. Yeah. Cause they're all the way in, uh, New York. Right. Um, and, or, yeah, no, I think it's Quebec, but they've moved to, they've moved to the States. Um, uh, and then he's here. Hmm. So much to think about of like, what that existence would be like. And I think a lot of people just hold this belief that like, it's never going to be them, mm -hmm. but I don't know. It's like, you just never know where life is going to take you or like how you're going to end up in a weird situation that you never thought you'd be in. Yeah. And like what thing that criminology has really taught me is that, um, you know, we're all capable of anything under the right circumstances or the mm -hmm. wrong circumstances. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, the thing that separates, me from someone in prison is the offense that they've done and the fact that they're behind bars and I'm not. Otherwise, you know, you know, they're, they're, they're just people. Yeah. Um, but we've, we've demonized them and put this really awful stigma on them where, mm -hmm. you know, some people can't see beyond the rap sheet and, um, a person is so much more than that. When you look at someone's rap sheet, it look, it might look really bad. Um, but once you sit down and talk to them, um, and learn maybe why they did what they did, uh, you know, it, it opens a lot of doors and it opens a lot of empathy for people I've found. It's, um, it's so interesting. I feel so passionately about so many different things that it's very hard for me to choose what I want to do with my life. Yeah. Like on the one hand, I landed a permanent venue tech position at a local theater Mm -hmm. those are it, unicorns like if you think about it there are only a couple of venue techs per theater yeah um there are plenty of technicians that come in as lay hands that are union that'll get four hours here eight hours there but you can't live on that yeah um even when you work for like six different employers which i did for one year um you can barely get by and the second there's like anything not even like a pandemic but anything that threatens your job security it's like oh you know this arena is doing renovations so like there goes 30% of your income or 15% of your income. It's like, yeah. that's really significant. Yeah. Um, so it's a very un, just unstable. Like there's, there's so much instability in, 
income. People are literally living paycheck to paycheck and then a mm-hmm. pandemic happens that destroys the industry. Somehow yeah. I managed to stay in a permanent venue tech position and you've got to figure with the number of theaters in greater Vancouver, like there are less than 20 positions total. Yeah. And yeah. in terms of union members with more seniority than me, there are over 500. Oh my God. Like it was an impossible feat for me to get this job, but a manager had looked at me and said, yeah, I get that you lack the technical skills and experience that some of these candidates have, but I really like the way that you handle conflict resolution and the way that you manage clients. And mm-hmm. like, you're, you have a congenial work demeanor, I think, were his exact words. Yeah. Um, which was like, oh, that's, that's wonderful. And I see that as a manager, you're really working hard to set a culture here that isn't like the old boys club that IATSE used to be. Yeah. Um, it's, it's changing. It's more tolerant. I was visibly queer. I would paint my nails and come into work. Mm-hmm. And only in theater, of all the construction industries, only in theater construction would you get away with that. Mm-hmm. Um, and I did. And it, it felt good. Um, yeah. Occasionally you get, you know, you'll hear people talking about snowflakes using they, them pronouns or whatever, um, which, is, which is a thing. It's, it's the industry. And I can manage people myself. People do that in academia, though, too. Like, right. Yeah. They shouldn't, but they do. Yeah. So what's neat about it is I have this, like, I could potentially have a career of just doing theater runs. Like, I could actually do that as my main job now that Mm -hmm. I've got this training as a venue tech and they want me back for the next season. So even if that season, I mean, they haven't made a job offer yet, but it's been sort of expressed that the desire is there if the work is there. And they may change their mind, but currently I'm one of the front runners, which is great. Yeah. Um, so I've worked as a venue tech now in a full-time position in theater, which very few stage techs can say. Um, and I'm a front runner for working as a venue tech in future. So that's one possible option. Then I've got IT. I could work as a web developer. I could work as network break fix. I'm planning on doing some courses to upgrade my ability to run servers and do network administration because it pays the best. Mm-hmm. Um, but, and there's also a huge demand for it, especially with how, um, COVID has affected everything. Yeah. There's been like a huge demand for better IT infrastructure and for network admins everywhere because all the network admins I know are just working like insane amounts of overtime to cope with the demand rather than hiring more people. Um, because the people that have the experience don't seem to be there. So like I've. I've known people that were onboarding, you know, like hundreds of new employees, all with accounts, getting them all set up, handling all of the requests for like customization and making sure that people had what they needed. And like some of them are working like 80 hour work weeks. Like it was just insanity. Yeah. Wow. And then there's also this criminology angle that like I think about rehabilitative work and I think about the ways I volunteer in transformative justice and like try and help lay communities understand transformative justice. And like when I hear you talk about um, like the one, how frustrating the work is, but two, how necessary it is. Mm-hmm. All I can think about is like, yeah, I would be very satisfied and happy. I think working my whole life being dissatisfied and unhappy with Canadian corrections. Yeah. And like the thing is, is that, you know, like people in like criminology and stuff, we, we can't do this by ourselves. We need, mm-hmm. we need people in other disciplines, um, who have connections that we might not, mm-hmm. um, who can, who can get into some spaces and really help us. Um, and we can help also help them make change. Like it's a very, um, criminology I feel like has become, at least for me, more activist based and more collaborative, 
mm-hmm. um, with other disciplines. Whereas before it was just a bunch of white guys writing textbooks that nobody read and nobody gave a shit about. Um, but right. now you have like, you know, like a younger, a younger generation who is able to reach out and who has connections to other disciplines. Um, so yeah. And we can, you know, we can, we can really make change. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The more I'm thinking about ideas for education and connection and the way that we're responding to COVID is like, we spend an insane amount of money just because you were talking about people in other disciplines. And I was thinking about websites and mm-hmm. technology. We spend just an unbelievable amount of money per person per year. And like, you could literally put a touch screen in people's cells. I know they destroy yeah. them, but touch screens aren't that expensive and no. regular screens are even less expensive. Yeah. Um, and if you're buying, you know, 10,000 of them, it's significantly less. Yeah. There are ways you could design access to education, access to friends and family calling you if they call in. So you wouldn't necessarily be able to call out. Yeah. Um, like there are all sorts of ways to monitor screen time and like set limitations. But like we're talking about giving people access to people and yeah. education and mm-hmm. rehabilitative programs. And I know those are probably best done in person anyways. Um, but just when you said other disciplines and we're talking about everyone being in segregation, I'm just like, there have got to be better solutions. Yeah. Anyways, that was just something that was floating around in my head because I mean, how do people write to prison journals? If they're in prison, do they literally physically write a letter? Uh, yeah, they have to handwrite everything I believe. Or in some of them, there are like computer labs. Um, like I know the prison that I was at when I, that I took the course at, uh, some of them were able to get like a guard to print it out for them, like type it up and print it out for them. Wow. Um, but some of them have like actual like computers that they can use, um, as like for educational purposes. Right. Um, but yeah, a lot of the time I know like a few years ago, at least it was done mostly by hand. Um, and then you get like a the journal for prisoners on prisons has two people who do, I think it's transcription. I could be wrong. Um, but I believe that, I believe that was a job title that I saw. That's cool. Yeah. Um, but yeah, that's how they generally get their, their voices out there. It's pretty incredible to me. Um, as a person growing up, that's, I guess, yeah, I'm a millennial for sure. I'm 86. Um, but as a person, growing up that sort of had the internet from 94 which would have been eight years old onwards and who had access to a computer since i was like seven yeah Um, i've spent my whole life being able to use computers for personal expression i was writing stories on them when i was very young yeah um and being able to do video calls like this the and 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 to be able to write to some limited extent um and essentially edit and produce a podcast. Like mm-hmm. these are all things that I do that I don't really get paid for. Although my Patreon has is actually like to a point where I can't say it's negligible anymore, which is great. Yeah. Thank you so much to my amazing Patreon followers who support <laughs> me and the work I do. Um, but uh, most of the ways I use computers are not for profit with the exception of web development and the way I've sort of been able to monetize my troubleshooting skills as network mm-hmm. break fix but I use it for education. Like I use it for everything in my life. It's how I organize my things. 
like I just use computers for almost everything. And the idea of going to pen and paper for absolutely everything is like, yeah, yeah. I think, I think that is the hardest thing. And I think as populations age and we move forward in time, we're going to need to start figuring out how to make that work. Like, yeah. 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 There are some prisons who have like, like I said, like computer labs, like, uh, there's a, a podcast that runs out of San Quentin in California. Um, it's called ear hustle and it's a podcast that's produced by, um, like a, an artistic program developer who's come in to work with prisoners. And then there's one there. So she works with a prisoner and then the prisoner like narrates the podcast and like hosts the podcast and then they edit it together and then they put it out um, on Apple wow. Podcasts. And they have guests, yeah. like some of the guys from, from San Quentin will come in and like tell a story. That's um, super cool. Yeah. But unfortunately, I think one episode they said it was like, it was right by an area that's like really noisy. So one of the hosts would always be like, hey, hey, knock that shit off. We're recording right now. And the guys would be like, oh, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> like they were very respectful once they got caught. They were like, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. So that's such a funny and important thing you just pointed out is this notion of getting caught. Yeah. Um, when I was doing just like lay research on this, because I was thinking about transformative justice with respect to sexual assault, because mm-hmm. so much of the factors that seem to be involved in motivation are tied up in this idea of will I get caught? And so yeah. not that tied up in how bad will the punishment be? Like that's part of the equation. Um, But at a certain point, you've maximized the deterrent effect of saying jail time. Like, oh, yeah, you've never been to jail. The thought of going to jail for a year or 10 years or the rest of your life, the 10 years and the rest of your life, it's really hard to make a discernment of how those are different. Yeah. Most people don't think about deterrence. Um, Like, like there we obviously with prisons, we've proven that it doesn't work. Um, Right. Crime rates are still the same. States that have the death penalty, um, their murder rates are still high. It doesn't matter. Um, so yeah, I don't think it, I I don't think it factors into people's minds. Um, I know like when I've done, like I've done bad shit, I've never thought about, Hmm, maybe I shouldn't do this. It's always been like an immediate, like I got, like I I have to do it now or something really bad is going to happen, but I'm not even thinking about punishment. Sure. Um, I'm thinking about like, just my the own the personal emergency for me that's happening right now right yeah i mean something that listeners might be able to relate to is have you ever downloaded anything illegally and <laughs> did you did you consider what the punishment would be if you were caught yeah or I did mean, you in just Canada, say I think you just get an email that's like don't do that again um well that's the funny thing is like they can catch you pretty easily also if you get yeah. said email don't reply to that email no i've never i just delete them yeah, it's, it's best to do that. It's also good to use that as a test of like, how good are your countermeasures? Are you using a VPN, et cetera? Not that I'm encouraging you breaking the law because I'm not. No, not um, at all. But what I am saying is, did the deterrent factor into your decision or did you say, how likely am I to get caught? Yeah. And if your yeah. decision is, well, the deterrent is an inordinate amount of money, possible jail time. I could be convicted of fraud or counterfeiting, um, you know, or did you just go... Eh, there's like a 99.9% chance no one's going to do anything. I'm almost certainly not going to get caught. I'm going to do it anyway. Yeah. 
That's me. <laughs> That's everyone, though. Like, we were motivated by, in my opinion, and from some of the reading I was doing, which is not academic reading. Um, actually, some of it was, but I'm trying not to overstate my case. My point is, a lot of what motivates humans in behavior is like, if it's, is it a thing other people disapprove of? And if so, what's their likelihood of figuring it out? Exactly. Yeah. Um, a toxically masculine example um, is if you talk about um, a lot of bros and you talk about sex, you'll get all these like hyper judgmental opinions about what their partners need to look like and like what status their partners need to have. Because yeah. in my opinion, so much of toxic masculine sex is about status and power. It's about being able to say you slept with the most attractive or desirable human, whether you're seeing that through a lens of racism and you see white women as the prettiest or whether you're seeing that through a lens of, of, you know, like body shame and like cultural conditioning. And you're like, Oh, well she has to have a certain shape or be a certain weight or whatever it is. Yeah. Um, or have a certain amount of muscular tone or, you know, there's the same things will apply regardless of what gender you are. They're just different based on the gender. So yeah. No gender is immune to that kind of shame, but it is a gendered issue where some genders are more adversely affected. Yeah. So when you talk to those people and you're like, hey, what if no one would ever find out who you slept with? Most of those people are like, yeah, I would sleep with that person. Yeah. If what they want is sex and they're like, no strings attached, you don't end up getting an STI, you don't end up getting pregnant if that's applicable and no one will ever find out. You're kind of feeling like having sex Would you, and you knew the sex was going to be half decent. Would you have sex with that person? Mm -hmm. Most people would say if no one knew about it. Yeah, I would have sex with that person. Yeah. Um, it's yeah. like Octavia Butler says, what is it that a man can do with a pretty woman that he can't do with an ugly one? Nothing, but he likes it better. Yeah. And it's just like, it's such a, <laughs> she's, she's talking about, um, in that case, it's from the Xenogenesis trilogy, and I love Octavia Butler. She's talking about aliens that find certain humans desirable for long-term mating, and the humans like, why am I desirable? Like, what are they even like? Why? Mm -hmm. And the way it's explained is like, well, why does some men find some women super desirable and not others? Like, yeah. And like, what is it they can do? Like, absolutely nothing. They just seem to like it better. I'm like, that's mm -hmm. such a great like parallel. Yeah. Yeah. But she's great at that. She can unpack really complicated social issues and explain them using post-humanism and science fiction and make them accessible to people holding positions of privilege in a way yeah. that is just masterful. Like, I absolutely love her work and recommend it extremely highly. God, I wish I could do that. Right? And <laughs> have that, you... that, that's a gift. <laughs> like... Well, there's a reason that she won the first MacArthur Genius Grant for, I think, science fiction writing, but possibly for a woman in science fiction. But I think science fiction writing, I think she's the first author to win a MacArthur Grant. Oh, wow. Yeah. Um, which is I not... didn't know how much those were. And then I looked them up and I was like, holy fucking shit. Aren't they like 25,000 or something? I think they're more than that. Really? Holy shit. I looked it up the other day because I was like... I was like, I wonder if I could win this. And I absolutely fucking could not. <laughs> $625,000. Right. And then I read the words like extraordinary, talented, and creative individual. And I was like, well, I'm out. <laughs> it's, it's so funny. That might be imposter syndrome because I think what you're doing is pretty incredible. <laughs> oh um, and it is creative. 
Um, but yeah, trying to aim to win a MacArthur Grant is like, there have been some exceptional humans in the world that have oh, yeah. never won them. Like, yeah. you might be more likely to win a Nobel Peace Prize. Like, or the lottery. <laughs> Possibly. Like, just, just randomly. Yeah, it's hard to say. I don't actually know. One I time like I found $100 tucked under a dumpster. So that was kind of like <laughs> a mini MacArthur Genius Grant for me. In that you were being creative and exceptional in that you looked under a dumpster. Uh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> well, congratulations on winning your prize. Yeah. Sometimes I'm like, I wonder what's under that shit. <laughs> oh my God. That's yeah. exceptional. <laughs> um, so talking about the pandemic, um, mm-hmm. and I, I'd love how the question of how is your work, um, relative to society during this crisis led mm-hmm. to like, if only we had a better way to unpack power dynamics and explain to people why, like being a prisoner, for example, um, in a disempowered place already, and then knowing that death might just be coming for you. Like, yeah. like it's so unimaginable for the average person to think about it. They only see the way that they're affected in their personal lives. Yeah. And yeah. that's already so egregious. It's like, yeah, you're trapped in luxury where you have comfortable bed, like just so so much access to computers and media and television and like yeah. programming that you want to watch you're not sitting there watching you know whatever's on on a communal television yeah um, and like most people's complaints that i've read are like oh, i'm bored and i'm like gee i wonder what people in jail are thinking about right bored. they were bored before this and now they're terrified and bored yep like it's just the the terror has taken over um, the boredom. Like everything that I've read, it's like there are super high tensions in prisons right now. Sure. So guys who are coming in, if they are coming in, um, I know the Edmonton Police Department is releasing people on their own recognizance. So what does that mean? Uh, they are not bringing them into jail, um, and they are not, for the most part, are not charging them. Wow. Uh, right now that which means there's going to be a big court backlog when this is all over but there's already a big court backlog in most provinces anyway it's going to be enormous yeah there's going to be a lot of people held in remand which is right now some people are being held in remand for years Um, right it's the prison where you go before you're even guilty of anything yeah yeah so for for bc it would be like surrey pretrial right are non-violent offenders going there yes why (laughs) and for uh for ottawa it's uh ocdc which is the ottawa correctional detention center i really hope they put on concerts annually no (laughs) no Uh, that is just the best name possible that they could have come with ocdc the best name for probably the worst institution um i've ever read about in my life it's like a dungeon it sounds like OCD, but also sounds like ACDC. Yeah. But actually, it's neither of those things. <laughs> it's it was, something even worse. It was weird, too. When I moved here, people were like, oh, yeah, an OCDC. And I'm like looking around I'm like, what the fuck are you talking about? Because I like and I realized like, oh, I'm the only person from the West Coast here. Right. Everybody else in this classroom knows what the fuck is going on. Right. And so like one time I was like, what's OCDC? And someone was like, how can you not know? And I was like, I'm from BC. Of course, I don't know. <laughs> so uh, when they explained it to me i'm like oh that that sucks yep um yeah yeah i don't think corrections anywhere has like a great reputation no and i also think it's an impossible challenge they're like 
under-resourced, they don't have the tools or even the approaches and you've got all of their funding coming from make sure no one gets hurt. Like if someone gets hurt, it's your fault. Yeah. Yeah. So um, there's, there's super, sorry, go Norway ahead. Norway has a pretty great correctional model. Um, so what they do is they don't use cells. Uh, they use dormitories, um, oh. but there aren't any doors. So you're still monitored effectively by the state. But what happens is you cook your own food um, you're involved in programs. So you like, you learn how to cook for some of them. They learn how to mix like audio and music. Cool. Um, you are basically trained in a job that you right. can go into as once you're released. Um, that they use it functional. as rehabilitation. Um, and right. they have a super low crime rate. Right. And people are worried about things like, well, but if you let them into the kitchen, they might hurt each, hurt each other with whatever, yeah, no, most of them aren't going to do that. They just want to eat. Yeah, like, you know, like legit. Uh, uh, there's a it's a healing lodge in Harrison Mills. Um, the the guys uh, who are incarcerated there, like, run the kitchen. So they when they make um, big meals for, um, like, what they do is they have blanket ceremonies for people being released and then people coming in or like new staff coming in or staff leaving. Um, so what the guys do, uh, if they, if they're approved to work in the kitchen, um, they make like bannock and they make big salads and like coffee and like, um, they gain all of these culinary skills so that when they go out, they can be like a short order cook or like, you know, have some kind of something a something to do in prison and b a super useful skill to have once they're out mm. and something that can give them employment as well so yeah it makes a lot of sense it's like yeah. we look at you know we look at um recidivism rates mm -hmm. and how much lower they are in some of these programs and i just it's like the insight thing to me all of the numbers say we are wasting money trying to hurt people yep. when we could be saving money and actively helping people. Yep. And typically the argument I hear against social programs is they cost too much. And I'm like, well, your hatred and your harm of people costs too much. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. I just, I don't, when people are like, oh, well, these people want all these social programs. And I'm like, why wouldn't you want them? Like we're trying to save you money. Yeah. But they, like, just, people can't see past the initial cost. Right. So you bring them a number and they just go, holy fucking shit. And you're like, yeah, well, it's not forever. Right. Like, this is just like a, a it costs money to, to start up a pilot program that usually yep. goes into your initial program cost. Right. Um, it costs money to hire people off the bat. Yeah. Um, and, and pay people what they deserve to be paid. Yep. Um, to work with criminalized folks, which I think people who work with criminalized folks should be paid um, quite a bit. Yeah, I think that's reasonable. You're going yeah. into a dangerous occupation. Yeah, where like, yeah. I mean, it's even if hazard you are, pay. Yeah, and even if you come from like an abolitionist standpoint, and even if you're, you know, someone like, like me, who's like super chill, um, there's still, I mean, you know, there's still a risk that somebody could be having a bad mental health day and act out in a way that is violent against you, there's there's yeah. a, always a risk of that. Yeah. And I think everyone who works in corrections has to know that every day yeah. when they go to work, like things could go badly today. And that kind yeah. of stress can wear on you. 
Oh yeah. And that, I think that's why they respond violently a lot of the time. Um, right. It's also a lack of training, like, um, sure. being trained in nonviolent intervention is another extra cost on top of their, um, CSC's training budget. Um, but right. like, I mean, God, if you train them in nonviolent intervention, instead of training them to like effectively, uh, pin somebody to the floor until that person can't breathe. Um, you know, I'd say that nonviolent intervention, even though it costs more, um, is much more effective training tool. Sitting down and being able to talk to somebody who's going through a crisis as opposed mm-hmm. to, you know, hitting them. Um, so, yeah. Yeah, it's it's tough to even just like think about like, how do you like how you go about changing the system with how expensive the system was to create and implement how expensive the land. I mean, I guess the land back then wasn't expensive because it was stolen. Um, but like how expensive land would be, how expensive people are, how expensive construction of buildings are, how expensive the time is to get those buildings made. Not to mention the intellectual cost of paying people to design new systems. It's just like, it's too expensive to do wholesale almost in the yeah. sense that it's, it's a very hard sell. Not that it's actually too expensive, but it's a very hard sell. Mm-hmm. And I mean, if you can convince people to redirect funds, you know, if you're taking prisoners out of the prison system where, you know, we're funding six figures per year to keep them incarcerated. Yeah. And you it's can like offer something. $100,000 a year to incarcerate somebody. Right. And if you can just take 10 prisoners out, you're like, cool, I'm literally saving a million a year. Yep. Here's what I want to do with that million a year. Yep. Um, it's not really costing anyone anything. Yeah. It's just a repurposing and redirection. So in a sense, it's actually a really good thing that the prison system is so bloated and expensive and ineffectual. Because if you can show a lower recidivism rate and be less expensive, again, you're like, it's like the insight thing again. It's like that triple bottom line of people offend less. So everyone's safer. Mm-hmm. We're harming the people who offend less. So everyone's safer yeah. and we're saving you money. Why are you spending money trying to hurt people? Yeah. And yeah. It, it comes back to these like, really, I don't know. I just see them as such like, anar- like um, anachronistic ideas, like these just outmoded ideas that like people are going to behave if you hurt them into behaving. And it just isn't true. It's, it's never worked. I mean, look at Ireland, like the Ireland-British conflict is a perfect example of that, where they thought if they were just more draconian and horrible, people would eventually break under the pressure. And what was demonstrated was like, the human spirit is so resilient to to horror and trauma and our ability to band together as a community under traumatic circumstances is probably why we're still around as a species today. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. It's like you look at the... um, the bombing of London during the second world war, same sort of thing. Mm -hmm. You know, there were people who were asked if they wanted to leave. And there's a, there's a a famous possibly apocryphal um, statement that a British man gave, which said, um, you know, there's never been something to the effect of there's never been anything like this before. And there never will be again. There's no chance in hell I'm missing this. Mm -hmm. And it's like that person was motivated to stay in an area where they might die. when they were told like if you had the ability to leave would you and it just it sort of speaks to that um oh what's it called there's a psychology term for this which is for people that are immediately near trauma 
they can become traumatized as well. Oh, but for, um, oh, I can't remember what's called. Yeah, I, I, I know. Yeah, yeah, but for people that are like two steps removed, like the bombs are falling and people are dying, but it was the house down the street, not the house next door. Yeah. You're just close enough to feel endangered, but you might also feel lucky because yeah. all of these things aren't affecting you. Yeah. And it's that sort of brazen confidence of like, yeah, bring it. You mm -hmm. can keep hitting the house down the street. It's not going to hit me. Yeah. Yeah. And it just sort of galvanizes people and makes them feel invincible, which is like such a neat psychological phenomenon. Mm -hmm. Yeah. By the way, listeners, if you think about what this is, please do me a solid and send me a message. I will. I will. I'm going to write it down. Like, I almost Great. want to call it secondary trauma, but that's not correct. Right. It, it has a, it's not vicarious trauma either. It's, no. um, it's one step beyond vicarious trauma. Yeah. I can't remember it. I remember reading about it and then my brain has just gone. Nope. <laughs> um, yeah. So talking about that more personalized <laughs> experience, I wanted to get on the topic of how the pandemic has affected your work itself. So how was it intimates? Did you love something you heard? Or maybe you're upset by something I said? Leave your comments on facebook.com slash intimate interactions, or you can go to patreon.com slash Victor Salmon, where you can find our Discord server. All of these communities are available on intimatepodcast.com, and I genuinely look forward to speaking with you soon. If you liked it, please consider helping us pay for show costs over at Patreon for as little as $1 per month. It's incredibly helpful. It's just a dollar a month. If you can afford it, we would hugely appreciate having your support. And hey, if that doesn't work for you, I completely understand. You can also help out by going to leave a review on iTunes or other favorite social media platform. Social proof like that helps so much with visibility and audience building. It helps other intimacy and relationship nerds find us. And if any of that just sounds like too much work, you can always do something really simple and it still goes a long way. Something like just tapping share and sending an episode that you liked, maybe a favorite, to a friend or partner, or maybe you can send them something you think they might really like. That's probably more considerate. <laughs> Thanks so much for your time and for your help in keeping us making more of Intimate Interactions. Oh yeah, I almost forgot. The intro music was Driving in the Rain by Timecrawler, and this outro music is Acoustic Blues by Jason Shaw.